We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm joined by Kevin Daly. He's a staff writer at The Washington Free Beacon, where he covers the Supreme Court exceptionally well. I highly recommend you give him a follow and make sure to stay tuned to his work. Kevin, you're also a Novak fellow this year, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm uh, at work on a book about the uh, Harvard Affirmative Action case. This is a lawsuit from a coalition of plaintiffs who assert that Harvard discriminates against Asians to vindicate its race preferences. It's a case that the Supreme Court will hear sometime this fall, likely in October. So we want to stay focused on domestic politics today because what's lost in this important news cycle um, about what's happening over in Europe is the fact that we have a Supreme Court nomination battle um, that's playing out right now here in Washington, D.C. And we have a nominee who has been extremely undercovered um, and is probably not known by much of the public, despite the fact that she's fairly young and if confirmed, as is likely, will be an extremely consequential force in American politics, American culture, and American life um, for decades, decades to come in all likelihood. So, Kevin, Judge uh, Katanji Jackson um, is Biden's nominee. So can we first start by just sort of breaking down um, what you, in your reporting, what was the sort of expectation? Was this the, was this, is the left happy with this pick? And does it make sense given sort of Biden's priorities? All great questions. And, and you're right. It's extraordinary that a Supreme Court confirmation is like the number four story in the country right now, but it is. And I think you're also right to highlight the fact that we don't know as much about Judge Jackson as we've known about recent Supreme Court nominees. That's not to suggest that she's a stealth nominee of some kind. It's it's just to say um, we don't quite know the cut of her jib yet, and, and uh, people should be more interested in it than they are. Um, in terms of the president's selection process, um, there are some, some interesting questions about Judge Jackson's experience. Uh, you know, the, the progressive left has successfully lobbied the White House since the president took office to prioritize people with uh, professional experiences that are kind of outside the mainstream for, for, the, for the bench. And, and by that, I mean this. Um, in, in recent decades, judges uh, from both parties have, have come from a, a pretty particular legal background. They are people who are experienced as prosecutors, um, partners at big law firms, uh, perhaps they were law professors, uh, but they were people who did not have a lot of ideological ba- baggage and who in the view of the progressive left had a kind of fundamentally status quo, pro-corporate worldview and, and a priority uh, for left-wing groups like, like Demand Justice or, or various affinity groups on the left uh, was for the president uh, to select nominees who have experience, say, as public defenders or as legal aid lawyers uh, or something like that to uh, mitigate against what they see as the elitist bent of the federal judiciary. Uh, Judge Jackson fits that bill somewhat in that she has experience as a, a public defender. That's experience, I think, has been maybe a little bit overstated. She, she was a, a public defender for just a couple of years, so it's not like she was deeply experienced in that field. Um, but I, I, I bring all of this up by way of saying that she actually has uh, quite a bit of, of big firm experience. She was uh, a counsel at Morrison and Foster, which is one of the biggest law firms uh, in the world. And early in her career, she was uh, a lawyer at a small litigation uh, boutique, arbitration boutique, excuse me, that is, I understand it, uh, helped big businesses uh, navigate 
uh, conflicts with, with their workers. So uh, it, what was interesting is there was a left-wing group called Demand Justice that, that put together uh, a, a list of prospective Supreme Court nominees a couple of years ago, and Judge Jackson was actually conspicuously absent from that list. So there was, oh, that's interesting. And I, and I think it's 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 um, it's related to those reasons that I, I just identified. And, and uh, I would like to better understand why a lot of people on the left kind of put those concerns about Judge Jackson's experience to bed. Um, the other thing I, I would say is uh, in this selection. Uh, the president had to make a, a strategic choice, right? Uh, Judge Jackson is not going to change the ideological orientation of the court. So the question for him is, do you want to select a nominee, maybe in the vein of Justice Kagan, who can effectively work the inside lane, if you will, a person who could be a consensus builder, perhaps mm-hmm. match victory from the jaws of defeat, make big questions small, convince the court to go incrementally, however you want to put it. Um, or he could have he could have picked uh, a nominee in, in the vein of uh, you know Justice Sotomayor, who really is not interested in the inside game at all, who thinks what she thinks, uh, and is not afraid uh, to, to criticize the court quite stridently when she thinks it's it's gone astray. And the virtue of that approach uh, is, is that you're kind of writing for for uh, for history first of all, and and you're writing uh, you know for an audience of practitioners and, and law students. Uh, sowing seeds and hoping that in the, the fullness of time, people will see the wisdom of the views that you've laid out and, and come over to your way of thinking. Uh, justice Scalia was probably the most consequential justice um, of, of the 20th century for, for that reason. Um, you know, he was, a, he was a lonely textualist and originalist voice on the court for a long time, uh, but, but his writings were so attractive that uh, he developed a, a following that, you know, as we see, has had a lot of political and judicial consequence. Um, so it was it was to, to President Biden to decide whether he wants that that moderating force or that um, you know blistering dissenter, and it seems that in Judge Jackson he's he's chosen a, a blistering dissenter. Yeah, and I want to get into more about why we know that um, from Judge Jackson's background. But if you could also break down just a little bit um, more the the questions about experience, um, because it's also we're in a climate where it seems to me, given polarization and the way our Supreme Court nominee battles have uh, evolved, that it, he can push through anybody with a, a lack of experience as long as it's his pick. Um, and it, it's almost as though it's it, it's not going to matter. Republicans will get great moments out of it during the confirmation hearing and will be able to ask very good questions, but ones that I don't ultimately suspect will uh, matter too much uh, to Democrats who are casting their votes and, and to the public who sees them. So tell us a little bit more about why the left has concerns about Judge Jackson's uh, lack of experience, or I would say relatively less, uh, I mean, traditional qualifications. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would like to better understand, uh, you know, why, why people on the left very quickly closed ranks around Judge Jackson. Uh, it, it happened fast. It, it happened. It seemed to me it happened actually maybe a year, a year and a half ago when the president tapped her for the D.C. Circuit. And it was clear that the White House was positioning her for the Supreme Court. Uh, I think that that is a, a dynamic that is not well understood. Um, what I would say about her experience is this. The, the meat of her judicial experience is uh, her time on the federal trial court in Washington, D.C. Before she was on the D.C. Circuit, uh, she was a, a trial judge at the U.S. District Court uh, for, for D.C. And, uh, you know, we, we really, and, you know, technically she's, she's a judge on the appeals court right now. She's not been on the D.C. Circuit for very long. She's written all of two opinions um, so I, I, you know, it, nominally she is an appeals court judge, but the bulk of her experience is as a district judge. And we just have not seen 
uh, in recent decades, a president nominates someone whose experience is predominantly on the district court. Justice Sotomayor had district court experience, but she had spent a lot of time on the Second Circuit, was more of an appeals person. And you know, the, the reason that that's interesting uh, is because uh, a trial court in our system is a, a fact finder. The job of a trial court judge is to listen from evidence, listen to evidence on, on both sides, uh, make determinations as to you know what evidence is credible, what evidence is not credible, what evidence you're going to pay attention to, and so forth, uh, and then apply the law to the set of facts as you have established them. What you're doing at the appeals court level is a little bit more analytical. You know, you're you're asking as an appeals court judge, not you know what are the facts here, but was the law correctly applied in this case? So it's it's something that's happening at a it's an analysis that's happening at a higher degree of abstraction. Uh, Jackson does not have a ton of experience doing that kind of legal analysis. Now, that by no means um, is disqualifying. And in fact, uh, I, I don't know how much I think this, but, but a lot of people would say uh, the Supreme Court is, is uh, too tilted towards people with, with appeals experience. If, if you look at the current bench, uh, eight of the nine justices, excepting Justice Kagan, were appeals court judges before they served on the Supreme Court. And before they were appeals court judges, they worked at fancy law firms, or they were professors, and they had sterling clerkships, and they, they more or less come out of the same law profession culture. Uh, and so a lot of people think that it would be a good thing to get a person who does not come out of that kind of uh, a monastic appeals milieu and get somebody with experience as a trial court judge or maybe get a you know, person who was experienced as a member of Congress or you know, a person who was an agency director or something like that, just to bring in uh, a different perspective to the internal deliberations. So Judge Jackson's experience uh, is different for that reason, but I, I don't think it's, it's disqualifying by any means. And there are lots of people I think right and left who have been calling for a nominee like her for a long time. I was going to say right and left. I think we did see some of that crop up on the right over the course of the last several uh, nomination battles that occurred over Trump. And I want to ask if you think this this less traditional route to the Supreme Court is going to be a sticking point for potential Republican uh, crossover votes on this uh, nomination. And, and I want to get your thoughts on that in general. Is this are we going to see um, Lindsey Graham, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski um, crossover and, and vote to confirm? You know, it's hard to say, of course, we don't know how this is going to play out. We don't know about Judge Jackson's, um, let's say, drinking history, and, and maybe we'll learn more about it. But uh, that's that's a little bit of a joke, but kind of a serious one, too, because these are so unpredictable. Jackson likes beer, but it's apparently a <laughs> It's a huge liability. There's there's no beer allowed on the Supreme Court anymore, and that's a, a hard and fast rule. Uh, but, but Kevin, this the background thing does seem to be um, it, it seems to me that Susan Collins and Lindsey Graham, these are traditionalists when it comes to the court. These are people who do like more traditional nominees, and these are uh, votes that actually could be uh, key in the confirmation of Judge Jackson. So what do you expect as somebody who's, who's followed these battles really closely? I think it'll be a, a low drama affair. I, I think uh, Senator Graham is kind of already signaling that he's going to get to know. Uh, he was a big advocate for Judge Michelle Childs, as you know, Emily, and uh, she was not ultimately selected. And, and uh, the senator put out a statement to the effect that, that President Biden was trying to appease the radical left or something like that. In, in That's right. And so I, I think he's, he's already on his way to know. I think Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski really like getting to yes on Supreme Court nominees. And, you know, bear in mind that um, I don't think in her entire tenure in, in Congress, 
uh, Senator Collins was was ever under as much pressure to vote no on a judicial nominee as she was in the Kavanaugh confirmation, and uh, you know she she stood firm on that and, and got to yes, and in part because uh, I, I think for her uh, experience and qualifications uh, is is more important than than any ideological questions. I mean, certainly she wants to make sure that the nominee is is kind of within the legal mainstream, whatever that means. Um, but I, I think both her and Anne Murkowski kind of like getting the yes. Uh, strictly on on the basis of, of qualifications, and then in terms of the hearing, um, you know, we never know how hearings are going to develop. There could be a you know a late breaking story that that makes us uh, you know kind of revisit the Jackson nomination, and ask uncomfortable questions. I doubt it. Um, although I doubted that about Kavanaugh too. So what do I know? <laughs> he was remember he was he was a sterling you know unimpeachable nominee. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like a you know Catholic dad basketball coach. It's, you know, nothing going on there. Um, but, uh, um, I, I think that this more than anything else will be a messaging exercise for the midterms for Senate Republicans. Uh, they is, I've done reporting on this and I think Senate Republicans are still kind of honing in on a message and a strategy Mm -hmm. for the hearings. I don't think anything is set in stone. I suspect that we're going to hear a lot about the crime spike. Um, and I, I don't know, it remains to be seen, uh, you know, whether Judge Jackson's record is susceptible to that kind of attack. But I think, you know, regardless, uh, Republicans will use the Brown nomination, uh, excuse me, the Jackson nomination as an opportunity to attack the Biden administration uh, on, on the nationwide crime wave. So that's interesting um, because I think you have insight into the extent to which the conversations about this this confirmation battle um, are revealing or telling about broader conversations about Republican strategy, and especially when it comes to the court, which sort of reminds me of the conversation about the filibuster, you know, and, and on both the left and the right. It's how much are these institutional traditions crucial um, or are we in war and do we need to sort of discard with our approach to it? How is this strategy congenial? Dealing, um and evolving on the right now, given that you have you've done some reporting on it and just super basic question attached to that. When do we expect the confirmation hearing actually to start? Um, I can give you a date on the confirmation hearing um, in, in just a second, because uh, Senator Durbin, who is the chair uh, of the Senate Judiciary Committee, put out um, uh, a, a schedule last week. And if you give me just one second. Uh, plenty, you, you have plenty of time, Kevin. This is like phone a friend on uh, who wants to be a millionaire, except you're phoning Google. I myself was just sort of filibustering there. Um, <laughs> so the uh, uh, hearings, they'll run a, a week uh, in the third week of March. Uh, March 21st will be opening statements uh, from the judge and from lawmakers on the committee. Uh, questions will come on March 22nd and March 23rd. Uh, and then on March 24th, we'll hear testimony from uh, the American Bar Association Standing Committee on the Federal Judiciary, which will have an evaluation about Judge Jackson and outside witnesses from, from both sides as well. So it's a process that will run a week. Um, after that, her nomination will be held over in committee for probably two weeks. And so this puts us on a course uh, probably for a mid-April confirmation. And, and Democrats have, have indicated that uh, they want to wrap this up by Easter. And I, and I think it's it's important to emphasize, and I have a story um, up uh, on this at the Washington Free Beacon for listeners who, who might like to learn more about this. Um, Democrats want to move quickly on the Supreme Court nomination because they want to resume confirming lower court judges as quickly as possible. Uh, as you know, only Republicans are, are favored to win back the Senate uh, in November. If that happens, judicial confirmations will slow from a flood to a trickle, probably very dramatically. 
Uh, and the fact is a, a Supreme Court confirmation is, is sort of like an eclipse. It, it blocks out the sun. And it, <laughs> yes. uh, it, it used to when we were, there was not a land war in Europe, um, but uh, it, it, stops, it stops progress on, on basically everything else in, in the Judiciary Committee. And that's because um, you know, staffers and lawmakers give themselves over entirely to understanding the nominee's record, preparing questions, meeting with outside groups, uh, and that kind of thing. So a Supreme Court confirmation usually comes at the expense of X number of lower court judges. And the, the Democrats do not want to blow this limited window that they have uh, to, to make a, a dent in the judiciary. So I, I think they, they want to move quickly, um, you know, in, in part to make a point about, about, the, uh, about Justice Barrett's timeline. Um, but it, it mostly because they do not want to lose progress on confirming President Biden's nominees to the courts. Huge tech companies in America pay next to nothing in taxes, meaning they barely give anything back to the society that made them rich. They may not do a lot of giving, but they sure do a lot of taking. Ladies and gentlemen, I am talking about how these tech companies enrich themselves by taking your personal data. They grab your web history, email metadata, and video searches to create a detailed profile on you and then sell that off to the highest bidder. Companies aren't just selling products anymore. They are selling you. You have become the product. To protect your identity and data from these tech giants, I recommend using ExpressVPN every time you go online. Think about all the websites you visit, Facebook, Twitter, Google, everything you do and say online is tracked by these giant corporations. Using your public IP address, they can uniquely match your activity and know your location. ExpressVPN makes you anonymous online by camouflaging your IP address and replacing it with a different secure IP of your choice. ExpressVPN also encrypts all of your data so that it's protected from hackers and anyone else that's trying to spy on you. And what I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. Just download the app on your phone or computer, tap one button, and you're protected. So if you're like me and believe your internet data belongs to you and not to greedy corporations, then ExpressVPN is the answer. Protect your data with the number one rated VPN provider today. Visit expressvpn.com slash federalist to get three months free of a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash federalist. expressvpn.com slash Federalist to learn more. Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner. Really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. So how does uh, Schumer's pace of judicial comp- confirmations compare with McConnell's sort of famous pace of judicial confirmations during the Trump administration? Are they accomplishing um, as much as they want to on that front? So I don't have the exact figures sitting here for you, Emily. I do know um, that the president made uh, President Biden and uh, Senator Schumer together made more nominations and confirmed more lower court judges than President Trump did in his first year. What I would say about that is that, and this relates to what we were just talking about with respect to Supreme Court nominations, uh, is that when President Trump took office, there was a vacancy on the Supreme Court, the, the one caused by Justice Scalia's death. So his first order of business was to pick a nominee, Justice Gorsuch, uh, and get that nominee confirmed. 
so the, the Gorsuch confirmation really took up the first three or four months of uh, President Trump's time in the White House. Uh, and they did not really get going in earnest on lower court nominations uh, until April, mm-hmm. uh, I recall. So um, Biden and Schumer together have in whole numbers gotten more done than Trump, uh, you know, but but Trump was was starting with a Supreme Court vacancy and, and Biden was not. And I would also say, um, you know, the the pace under both of these presidents is incredibly quick. And mm-hmm. I think this is that this is the norm now for, for judicial confirmations. I, I think that, that judgeships are going to be a priority item for every administration um, and, and every Congress going forward. So this is the new normal. That's a really interesting point. And now that we are sort of up on the process and, and what folks can expect, because this is coming up really soon and it's coming up while, as you said, Kevin, there is a land war in Europe. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about Judge Jackson's background, her record as a district judge? What do we know about what stands out, what she, maybe some key decisions? Fill us in on that. Sure. Um, I'll talk about her, her district court record in a, in a second. What I would also say about her career before the district court uh, is that she, uh, I, I don't mean to say, she, she changed jobs a lot. Um, <laughs> she, she was uh, a lawyer in private practice for a time, and then she was in the public defender's office, and then she was with the U.S. Sentencing Commission. Um, it, it was a lot of bobbing and weaving. And what I think is interesting about that is uh, Judge Jackson has talked about this in, in public remarks in the past and, and said that that was a function of her being a working mother, of her, you know, giving birth to, to children and, um, you know, raising infants. It was somewhat disruptive to her professional life. Um, and the reason I think this is interesting is that's, I think, an extremely attractive message to to uh, lean into for Democrats. Uh, it certainly is one that Republicans leverage to good effect during the Barrett confirmation. That's right. Well, and I'm, I'm somewhat surprised that we have not heard more from Democrats about her accomplishments as a, as a working mother during that maybe 10-year period when, when she was you know, having her family and, and, and trying to, uh, to be a lawyer. Um, maybe we'll hear more about that. Maybe we won't. Um, in terms of her, her record in the district court, I, I think I would characterize her as, as being part of the judicial resistance to President Trump. Oh, that's, that's quite interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I, and I say that I say that because you know, one, being a, a, a trial court judge in, in Washington D.C., you do get a lot of action. Uh, so she was involved in, in a number of politically salient cases. Uh, one, for example, was to do with uh, the House Judiciary Committee's subpoena for then White House Counsel uh, Don McGahn. Uh, she wrote a, a very lengthy decision uh, siding with with House Democrats in that dispute. Uh, ultimately that case settled because McGahn and House Democrats kind of came to terms uh, as, as to, um, uh, if I'm, particularly of his testimony and, and turning over documents and that kind of thing. I'm, I'm not familiar with all the terms of the settlement. Um, we never got to, to resolution there. Um, you know, but, but what I would note is, is that the, the Supreme Court actually broadly sided with the president um, in separate but related disputes over House subpoenas for his financial records. Uh, and in the, the Trump versus Mazars case, uh, the, the court picked apart a lot of the justifications uh, that House Democrats offered for subpoenaing the president's financial records. Um, I, I don't know how that cashes out in terms of the McGahn case, only because I haven't looked at it closely. I think it's relevant to note. Um, another uh, major case uh, involved uh, a trio of executive orders that, that President Trump issued uh, about civil service protections. Uh, the orders, and I'm describing them generally here, um, reduced grace periods for poor performing government workers, uh, mm. restricted the amount of time federal workers may spend on, on official union du- duties during business hours, 
uh, set goals for agencies to pursue when, when negotiating contracts and, and narrow the range of issues um, subject to, to collective bargaining between government worker unions and the government itself. Uh, a coalition of government labor unions sued the Trump administration. Uh, they argued that those orders violated a, a federal law called the Federal Service Labor Management Relations Act. Mm-hmm. Um, now, getting, we're getting a little bit into the weeds here, but, but what I would say about that case generally is that uh, Judge Jackson sided with the plaintiffs who were suing the Trump administration uh, and issued an injunction uh, that barred the administration from, from implementing the orders uh, her decision was reversed by an ideologically mixed panel of the D.C. Circuit. Mm. As I recall, it was uh, one Democrat appointee, Judge Srinivasan, if I'm not mistaken, who's an Obama appointee, uh, and, and two Republican appointees. And, and what the court said was that uh, you know Judge Jackson didn't uh, have a jurisdiction to hear that case in, in the first place uh, because this dispute should have been funneled through uh, a federal agency before it goes to court. Again, without getting too much into the weeds, um, there's a, a, an expectation in many areas of the law uh, that government workers are, are first going to try to sort out their beefs with the government via an administrative process that's handled by an agency before they get to court. And you can't get to court before you go to the agency. Hmm. And the, the D.C. Circuit said in this case, uh, the government workers to challenge Trump's order need to go through the agency process first before before going uh, into into federal court. Uh, but I think notable that that uh, you had an ideologically mixed panel that that thought that Judge Jackson got that wrong. Uh, the other thing I would say that's interesting about that is is Judge Jackson I think is going to have to come at things the opposite way uh, as a Supreme Court justice, and, and by that I mean this: uh, in ideologically salient cases, the liberal justices know that they're just outgunned. Um, and so when a, when a compromise is not obvious, they try to get cases tossed on technicalities. And they will say, you know, we don't have jurisdiction to hear this case, you know, for any number of reasons. And so Judge Jackson is going to have to, you know, get used to arguing against jurisdiction, you know, rather than for it. Um, and uh, I, I don't, I don't, you know, it, it seems her instincts go in the other direction uh, based on, on her decision in, in this case. Um, but again, I would kind of, you know, broadly describe her as, as being a person who was very friendly to left-wing groups who were, um, I, I haven't mentioned, you know, probably the case most interesting to your uh, listeners is uh, she, if I'm not mistaken, uh, enjoined uh, a, a Trump administration policy that expanded the pool of illegal immigrants who are eligible for fast-track deportations. Mm. Um, so she was a person who reliably sided with with critics of, of the administration, and uh, I, I think you know was was um, maybe too eager to do so, and was sometimes reined in by um, by the court of appeals that that oversees her court. So as conservative legal groups circulate the the briefing documents that I know you've seen more of than I have, one thing that stood out to me um, that was highlighted, and I want to get your take on whether this is this is accurate or how much should be read into it. I believe it's true she was the most reversed judge uh, as a district judge. Is that correct? During her stint, she was her decisions were the most were reversed the most frequently. I, I have heard that, and the figure I've heard was a was a fifteen percent reversal rate, which is high. Um, you know, but but I stress that's very high actually for a district judge. Um, I, I stress that uh, that is based on what other people have told me, and I have not assessed that myself. What would that indicate if it's if it's accurate? What does that indicate? Yeah, I mean, high high rates of of reversal are are never good, and, and it goes um, you know first to it can indicate any number of things. I mean, um, you know, it can indicate you know questions about basic competence and fitness. Um, you know, it can indicate that said judge is an activist. 
um, which I, I think is maybe the answer here. Uh, it can also indicate that, that sometimes the uh, appeals court and the district court are not ideologically aligned, right? You know, so I'm sitting, I'm talking to you from, from Texas, and, and uh, you know, the, the appeals court in Texas is the 50 U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. People say that the Fifth Circuit is a pretty conservative court. That said, there are Democratic judges down here, and I've not looked at this myself. I, I would assume that the judges appointed by Democratic presidents maybe have a somewhat higher reversal rate. So sometimes it can indicate that, that the appeals court is not ideologically aligned with the trial court, but that's not true here because the D.C. Circuit is a, a left-leaning panel. Uh, so I, I, I think it, it, um, if it is true that, that her reversal rate is, is quite high, then um, you know maybe, maybe that would point to her being a little bit of an activist. Yeah, this is from First Liberty. They say during her time as a district judge, Jackson was one of the most frequently reversed judges on the D.C. Federal District Court, a statistic that signals a low judicial competence. And I imagine that sort of will fit into the broader framework um, that Republican attack, the Republican attack strategy, if it's on qualifications and this less traditional path forward or, or path to prestige, um, I imagine that's something we'll, we'll, we'll maybe see come up. Uh, Kevin, what do we know about Judge Jackson's record on religious liberty and on life? Not very much. Um, as far as I know, I could be mistaken on this, as far as I know, she's, she's never heard an abortion case. And uh, she, I can't think of any major religious liberty matters that she's handled as a, as a judge. Uh, don't hold me to that. Um, but, but I would say we, we don't know very much. Uh, you know, that, that said, I, I think we can safely assume that she'll be aligned with, um, you know, the, the left wing of the court on those issues. Although I'd also say that, um, you know, J Judge Jackson, I, I wouldn't, I, I don't offer this by way of suggesting that she'll be a, a pro-life vote or something like that. Um, you know, Judge Jackson is, is, I think, a bit more religious than maybe some of her supporters realize. So, for example, she sat on the board of a Baptist school in the D.C. area, uh, which on its website uh, promoted orthodox views uh, about sexuality, about marriage mm -hmm. between one man and one woman uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, and she has uh, long ties um, to, uh, to, to Christian churches. Uh, and we, we did hear her in, in her uh, brief remarks at the White House speak just a little bit uh, about, about God and, and her faith life. Um, so I, I, I don't think that's going to cash out as being like a conservative religious liberty jurisprudence or anything like that. Um, you know, but I, I, I suspect that the left is always a little bit jarred when, um, you know, people... Their, their standard bearers begin to talk about God and religion. <laughs> yes. Well, that's an interesting question as to whether anyone on the left will bring that up during her confirmation hearing, if even it's in a sort of layup softball way to let her um, explain it away. So it, it's not an issue. And, and maybe with that question, I'll ask you, do you expect for any reason, um, any pushback from people on the left who do frequently apply purity tests, as we well know, um, do you think this will be, a, you, you said you expect this to be a, a a fairly easy confirmation and an uneventful confirmation. Is there any indication that uh, any indication of opposition um, on the left that could bubble up into something more, or is everyone pretty happy with what they see from Judge Jackson? Uh, all signs are that people are on the left are happy with what they see from from Judge Jackson. As I say, I would like to better understand why Democrats closed ranks around her a couple of years ago because she initially was not, I think, the the favored candidate or at least people had some reservations about her. The other thing I would say, um, you know, that, that's kind of awkward for, for Democrats is, um, you know, the, the Democratic Party does not have a, a judicial philosophy in, in the way that, that Republicans do. Um, you know, they might purport to um, prioritize certain values, 
uh, you know, but but there's no there's no you know left wing equivalent to originalism or textualism or that kind of thing. So so whereas the right has a very particular set of tools for assessing a judicial nominee, I think on the left, especially for Democratic politicians, the the calculus really is as crass as are you going to vote? How I want you to vote. Hmm. Um, and, and Judge Jackson has has given no reason to think that she's not going to vote how Democrats want her to vote. Uh, so I, I, I think, you know, people people will be comfortable with her for that reason. But it, it is always, you know, somewhat unusual to, to listen to um, Democratic lawmakers talk about judicial nominations because it, it, it does get policy based like immediately. Well, there seemed to be a grievance on the left over the, the course of the Trump administration when he successfully pushed through three nominees in some difficult battles um, that they all believe are, are very extreme, and which is funny because the right is sort of dissatisfied already with um, some of the nominees, Gorsuch, for instance, um, and then you can go on down the line and, and sort of pick them all apart. But they seem to say the right is really good at this. Why are we not better at it? Which I don't know if is actually a, a sort of legitimate gripe, but that was the activist left kind of uh, pushed that line and, and did show that grievance. H- have they changed anything about their judicial philosophy um, in the wake of their, their losses of, you know, basically three seats? Um, I guess, I don't know how many actually flipped uh, off the top of my head, but have they changed anything at all about their approach to this? Yeah, so I, I, I mean, I would say that, that left-wing litigators are uh, getting more comfortable speaking the language of, of textualism and originalism. I think that's something that was happening even before the Trump administration. But the fact is, you know, if you're going to be an advocate before the Supreme Court, uh, before this Supreme Court in particular, uh, you're going to be asked as about, you know, how your argument, um, you know, sounds in, in the original meaning of the Constitution. Or, you know, you're going to have to show if it's a statutory interpretation case, for example, um, you know that that your argument uh, coheres exactly with with the text of the statute. So um, these are, are tactics that the the left is is learning um, with varying degrees uh, of of success. Um, you know the the other thing on. I just lost my train of thought completely. The, well, the left uh, the left is learning to yeah yeah yeah. Here's another thing I said. Um, Another thing I, I would say, and, and I, I agree that the like critique from the far left is is you know, like really curious as to like how successful Republicans have been at, at um, you know getting their their young guns onto the bench and what a threat the Federalist Society is and that kind of thing. The Federalist Society exists because law profession culture is like profoundly left wing already, right? Like the left does not need a Federalist Society. The left has the American Bar Association. The left right. Academia. <laughs> It's really like, like every single <laughs> law, rich big law firm, is is has has a decided left wing skew. You know, there are a handful of conservatives in every practice because you need them. Uh, but but the, the legal establishment is is owned, uh, you know, by by the Democratic Party, and so they they have no need of a of a you know Federalist Society type group because uh, they they control the ecosystem. So um, I, I I just I find that that criticism like kind of bizarre doesn't that's a super important point because sheldon whitehouse during amy coney barrett's confirmation got out his um weird pin board and was doing the sort of charlie day on it's always sunny thing with pepe silva and, and making this look like some grand conspiracy theory from fed sock to all of these different conservative judicial groups but it's on the left you 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 can do the same thing but it's just none of these groups these groups are all bigger and purportedly mainstream so you aren't able to frame it as a conspiracy it's not a conspiracy on the right of course it's not it's all out in the open as white house is 
little shtick actually proves. Uh, but th- I think that's a super important point about the left. Yeah, and um, you know, the, 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 we can digress a little bit and, and talk about White House. I, I think um, you know what, what to me is somewhat unusual about his arguments is that they they kind of rest on on premises that are not true. So you know, for example, when he talks about like conservative dark money influence at the Supreme Court, you know, he'll often point at the number of uh, amicus briefs that are filed from conservative uh, organizations in a given case. Um, now, for your listeners, uh, an amicus brief. Uh, is a brief from an outside party, a person who is not a, a party to the case, right? If it's Daly versus Yashinsky, for example, which yes. is because we're famously good friends, but supposing it were. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, supposing like, uh, you know, Sager and Jenny or Philip Whiteman or something, you know, <laughs> to weigh in on, on our dispute, they would do so via an amicus brief. Um, and, you know, these, these briefs are usually largely duplicative of what the lawyers are saying on the merits. There's rarely a new argument in there. Um, so uh, amicus briefs are not terribly consequential. Once in a while, somebody will write, um, you know, a useful amicus brief, but not really. Um, you know, but, but you know, White House will look at the number of, of, you know, dark money amicus briefs that are filed in a given case and say, you know, look at this is tantamount to lobbying. Look at all of this influence monitoring that's happening in these cases. And it's like, Sheldon, like, excuse me, Senator White House, you know, <laughs> you were an appeals litigator before you were a member of Congress. If I'm not mistaken, he was either a U.S. attorney or a state, uh, a state attorney general, something like that. You know full well, unless you're an idiot, that amicus briefs are not especially consequential. There are, there are you know, I will say in all fairness, there are some people who will make arguments as to why amicus briefs matter. I don't agree with them. Uh, I think most people would say amicus briefs are, are not consequential in, in litigation. Uh, and so that he he makes this claim that, that amicus briefs are, are proof of, of you know, dark money influence at the court or something or an indicator for them or channels of mischief or however you want to put it, <laughs> he's, he's making an argument he knows to be untrue. Kevin is in Austin right now um, during South by Southwest season, and I feel like channels of mischief is playing South by Southwest this year. <laughs> I, I, they gotta be. You know, what, you know what's great is um, there are a lot of like local acts down here for whom South by is, is kind of, uh, I'm struggling to find the right word. It's like a showcase for sure. them. And there's so much great local music down here, so I'm I'm really excited to to go and see uh, some of the local bands that I really love get get um, a little bit of national attention because they deserve it. Hopefully, Channels of Mischief is among them. Um, Kevin, I want to ask you one question while you're here, based on what you were just talking about um, in regard to Amicus briefs. Which, first of all, why does everybody pronounce that word differently? It's it's maddening. Um, I mean, Amicus means, and I I, I mean I don't know why I'm either. Um, uh, Amicus Amicus means friend of the court. Um, right. So maybe some people say Amicus, some people say Amicus, some people, you know, I don't know. I don't know. No, none of us are Latin, that's why. It's maddening. Um, so this was used against Clarence Thomas um, in Jane Mayer's uh, predictably, characteristically bizarre and inaccurate and actually debunked in a couple of different Federalist reports article about... Yeah, in the New Yorker about Jenny Thomas and Clarence Thomas, and she is making this argument that because groups Jenny Thomas has connections to have submitted amicus briefs, uh, many amicus briefs over uh, the years, that creates this glaring and massive conflict of interest um, for Clarence Thomas. That seems to be reliant on the argument that amicus briefs are enormously consequential. Yeah, you're exactly right about that, and and uh, you know I, I I'm familiar with very familiar with the mayor piece. Um, you know I, I thought that. Um, you know, that, that claim was, was one of, of several reasons that piece misses the mark. And the other thing I would say is, um, you know, if, if you really want to go down that road, 
the fact is Washington legal practice is very clubby. You know, everybody knows each other. Um, and and you know, the fact is, you know, a lot of amicus briefs are filed by people who are close friends of the justices. They have to recuse when that happens because that happens a lot. Uh, you know, a lot of, you know, ex-law clerks for justices will file uh, amicus briefs. Um, you know, this is a person who was your professional protege. This uh, in, in Supreme Court cases, and justices participate in cases featuring their ex-clerks. It's, you know, why, you know, if 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 Ginny Thomas's, uh, you know, advocacy activities are, are grounds for recusal, um, and, and all it takes is, is the mere, like, appearance of, of impropriety, uh, I think that we can cast quite a large net. And, and I think, you know, the reason ultimately that, that these recusal arguments, I, I think, are a little tangentious uh, is because, you know, rec- recusals are and should be very rare. At the Supreme Court. Uh, and the, the reason for that is there's no replacement when a justice steps aside because of a conflict. The, the court is reduced to being an eight-member court or a seven-member court. I actually once saw a six-member court, which is as small as it can get to have a quorum. Um, but, but, you know, when, when the court has an even number of justices, especially if it's an ideologically salient case, it can be difficult to get things done. And, and you don't, you know, you, you don't want the court to be unable to resolve an issue. Um, because a justice had to step aside because of a because of a loose conflict, right? Um, so I, I, I and, and you know inevitably you know when, and people tend to so there are a number of canons uh, that that bear on recusal. The one people talk about most, especially with respect to to Clarence and Jenny Thomas, is is a, a canon having to do with the appearance of impropriety. Usually, what this comes down to is like hard partisans on one side or the other claiming that things look bad. And uh, give me a break. It, it, and it's also amazing how it's like plucked when it comes to Clarence Thomas, but nobody else. Like we don't know about anybody else's conflicts of interest, despite the fact that if this is the standard, um, we could talk about a lot of other people. I will say Judge Jackson has a really fascinating conflict in a really important case that is near and dear to me that the case will be that the court will be hearing next term. Uh, that's the Harvard Affirmative Action case that I think I mentioned at the top of our talk. Go on. Uh, Judge Jackson actually serves on the Harvard Board of Overseers, which is one of the two governance boards uh, at Harvard University. Now, uh, I'm agnostic as to whether or not she should recuse. Um, We don't know how much of a role the overseers play in crafting admissions policy. If it can be shown that the overseers uh, do either craft admissions policy or or, kind of oversee it in some general way, I probably a, a tight argument for recusal. If the overseers are not very much to do with admissions, then I, I think it's um, it's less obvious that she should step aside. Uh, she has recused herself in the past uh, twice from education issues uh, due to her service on Harvard's Board of Overseers. If I'm not mistaken, one of those cases um, it was about uh, Department of Education regulations about campus sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Uh, DeVos put out during the, the Trump administration. Um, I'm not mistaken, she, she recused from a, a case on, on that subject because of her service at Harvard. So she's recused before, um, and, and this is a, a conflict that I think is, is actually potentially interesting. Uh, I think she will be asked about it during the confirmation battles. I, I don't think she'll say anything more than, you know, I'll, I'll do my best to, um, you know, serve, serve with integrity and, and I'll follow all relevant ethics guidelines. And I think that's all she needs to say. Um, but that that is a that's a much more live potential conflict in my opinion. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And if if she is confirmed uh, by Easter, do you expect that Justice Breyer, maybe he's already said this and I missed it because of the land war, um, will he step down and or is he stepping down after this this term? Yeah, I'm, I, so his his resignation, this is from his confirmation, his, uh, his retirement letter, his uh, departure from the court is uh, contingent on the con- confirmation of a successor. Uh, I am not clear on the timeline yet, and as I think we're all unclear as far as I know. Um, you know, okay. I, think, I think she may be, you know, confirmed by Easter, and then she would actually assume her seat probably in July, right after uh, the, the court leaves for its summer recess. I think that would be um, a, a very good timeline for her. Uh, because it would give her a, a couple of months to set her chambers up and to get up to speed on, on court business, um, you know, while the rest of the justices are, you know, traveling in Europe and quote unquote teaching in law schools. <laughs> All the little stuff they do during the summer while the rest of us are working. Um, but uh, I, I, I think it would make the most sense, uh, you know, for her to, to take her seat uh, during during the summer and and not not immediately, but I'm I'm not sure how that's all going to play out. And it is a really interesting question, Kevin. Why, with all of this legal knowledge and interest, are you not a lawyer? Why would you pursue journalism <laughs> instead of law school? Yeah, I, I it's, you know, uh, uh, I I think I I like pretending to be a lawyer more than <laughs> uh, actually being one. Uh, I, I like you know, come on, you get it, Emily. We love the news game. Um, I think law practice is really interesting. I think it's mostly pretty boring. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know that I have a good answer for you. Other than, um, <laughs> I'm not satisfied by that answer at all. There has to be something wrong. Why would somebody choose to be a journalist? You know, like, look, SCOTUS, SCOTUS is really interesting. There are appeals issues that are really interesting. Uh, I think there's a lot about law that's really boring and I don't care about it at all. Um, and, and I mean, we're, we're like junkies in, in this business. I mean, when you're chasing a good story, I mean, you're riding an adrenaline rush that lasts for a long time, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And like, I, I personally cannot get enough of that. So I'm, I'm, I'm just a junkie for good journalism, and that's why I do this. Okay, so that makes news. Also, there are just so few. Uh, that makes sense, but there are so few beat reporters, especially in conservative media. <laughs> That it has to be kind of a nice, nice fun. first the sirens and, and now the phone ringing. I was going to say, Kevin, uh, the last time we had sirens like that was last week and it was Bedford, who I think probably hired you in your first job. Uh, the sirens were unbelievable on Capitol Hill. That's yeah, that's exactly right. Shout out Chris Bedford, who's uh, an outstanding guy and, and was my first boss and he brought me on, brought me on to the Daily Caller. I, I worked for him for almost four years. Well, to all of our listeners who know Chris um, intimately uh, at this point, and I say that with, uh, you know, I think that's for better or worse. Uh, (laughs) To all of our listeners, imagine having Chris Bedford be your boss, let alone your first boss. Um, Kevin Daly, thank you so much for enduring um, Bedford to to go on to do the the work that you've done and to do the reporting that you've done and to bringing your insight to our podcast today. Uh, Always a pleasure to join you, Emily. Thanks very much for inviting me. Absolutely. We'll have to check back in as the confirmation hearing unfolds. Kevin Daly, he's a staff writer at the Washington Free Beacon. He's a Novak fellow. Make sure to follow his work. I'm Emily Jashensky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray.
15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Wait a minute. I've heard that before. That's the note Jeremy wrote to me in my yearbook in the sixth grade. How'd you even know that? Because it's from Geico. Yeah, yeah wait, here it is. Dear Luke, have a great summer. P.S. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Love, Jeremy. Geico's had this tagline for years because we help save people money. So wait, you're saying Jeremy copied you? <laughs> yeah, that actually does sound like something the J-Man would do. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more.